Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, a welcome delay. In July, the IRS announced a temporary reprieve to the implementation of new foreign tax credit regulations. So what effect will this delay have? And what does it mean for future guidance? Tax Notes senior legal reporter Andrew Velarde will talk about that in just a minute. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Tax Notes federal author Christopher Morin about how the proposed energy credit regulations would decrease investment in renewable energy projects. But first, Andrew, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. It's good to be here. Could you start off with a bit of background on what's been going on in foreign tax credits before this most recent guidance? Sure. I think a little level setting would be beneficial to understand why the IRS may have felt the need to issue its most recent notice, which came in July. Now, bear with me here. Let's go back to January 2022. That's when the IRS and Treasury released final foreign tax credit regs that substantially changed the rules for determining whether a foreign tax is creditable. Those rule changes were made to address novel extraterritorial taxes that split from U.S. rules and, quote, abandoned international norms, namely digital services taxes. The final regs clarify that there are four aspects to a creditable tax, realization, gross receipts, cost recovery, and attribution. But taxpayers were strongly critical of the rules arguing they went far beyond the targeted digital services taxes and could deem many taxes non-creditable. The attribution and cost recovery requirements in particular were the subject of a lot of taxpayer criticism. With its source rule, the attribution requirement demands that foreign tax base amounts be limited to sources inside a country with source rules functioning like those of the United States. Now, some argued that royalties and payments for services performed outside the taxing jurisdiction could fail to meet the source-based attribution requirement. Cost recovery requires that tax base be reduced by significant costs attributable under reasonable principles to gross receipts. Critics argued that analyzing cost recovery would require an examination of whether expenses are significant and a knowledge of local law that taxpayers and the IRS lack. It might also create a cliff effect because if the IRS or taxpayer determines that a foreign tax law doesn't allow for the recovery of a significant expense and that denial is inconsistent with the U.S. code, the entire foreign tax is not credible. The government went about trying to address some of these worries from the final regs, first with technical corrections and then with proposed regs in November 2022. These proposed regs provided a single-country royalty withholding carve-out and a cost recovery safe harbor. The carve-out allows creditability even when foreign tax rules don't follow the code and instead source royalties based on residence. If a taxpayer has licensed intangible property that is used only in the foreign jurisdiction where the licensee is a resident. Now, do these new regs address the problems that some taxpayers had had with the old ones? Not entirely. Taxpayers and practitioners were certainly pleased with the changes in the proposed regs, but many felt they didn't go far enough. For instance, they asked Treasury to expand the single-country royalty withholding carve-out to also apply to services. Initially, Treasury's reaction to this seemed to be cool at best, but later in June, the IRS said it would welcome comments on situations where such an exception for services would be appropriate. 
The FTC regs, the final regs now, also caught the eye of lawmakers. In June, House Ways and Means Republicans voted to advance the Build It in America Act, which would allow U.S. companies to ignore the FTC regs. So that brings us now to July and the latest notice from the IRS. So what did they do? That's right, Dave. So on July 21st, the IRS issued Notice 2023-55, which provides temporary relief from its FTC rules. This one came as a surprise to the practitioners I spoke with, notwithstanding the criticism and the legislation I just told you about. There's not a lot of substantive analysis to it. It's only five pages long, but it could have a huge impact for taxpayers. Essentially, the notice states that for tax years beginning on or after December 28, 2021, and ending on or before December 31, 2023, taxpayers in most situations can apply the old rules for Sections 1.901-2A and B on the definition of foreign income tax and the net gain requirement. But no foreign tax based on gross receipts or gross income satisfies the net income requirement unless its base is solely investment income, not from a trade or business or wage income. So DSTs will continue to be uncreditable. And taxpayers can apply the existing Reg Section 1.903-1 without applying the jurisdiction to tax-excluded income or source-based attribution requirement. The relief can be applied to any relief year if taxpayers apply it to all foreign taxes paid in the year, including taxes paid by controlled foreign corporation. All consolidated members must apply the temporary relief to the eligible. It's a rather unusual move, according to the practitioners I talked to. The regs have not been withdrawn, but the notice may be a harbinger of future changes. It states that analysis is still ongoing and additional temporary relief or amendments to the 2022 final regs may still be coming. The government has said that it issued the notice because of legitimate concerns about intended consequences from the final regs and the realization that follow-up guidance couldn't address all these concerns as quickly as they would like. Practitioners have praised the notice as an acknowledgement from the government that the FTC rewrite may have swept far more broadly than the project's original intent to address DSTs. So we've heard from practitioners. Have we also heard from the business community about this notice? Yes, it's getting a fair amount of attention from big multinationals, as is evident by a number of specific mentions in recent SEC quarterly filings from some of these companies. Its exact dollar impact is still being evaluated in many circumstances, although a few companies have put a number on it. Johnson & Johnson, for example, said delaying the FTC rules until 2024 would result in recording a tax benefit of a half a billion dollars. And VMware, the cloud computing company, recorded a $60 million tax benefit earlier this month. Support for this podcast is provided by Practicing Law Institute. Check out Practicing Law Institute's popular tax strategies program taking place this fall. Attend this essential corporate tax program where you'll receive the latest information, strategies, and practical insights from leading tax practitioners. For more details and to register, visit pli.edu slash taxstrategies23. That's pli.edu slash taxstrategies23. All right, so we've got a, a great ending for these companies then. Well, yes and no, not quite just yet. 
They were undoubtedly pleased with the delay, but companies were quick to ask the IRS and Treasury to go further. In August, the Silicon Valley Tax Directors Group said the notice may have provided, quote, much-needed breathing room to evaluate FTC developments, but that the government should extend the temporary relief and possibly even withdraw the regs entirely and propose new ones. This is a significant taxpayer advocate group for the tech industry. They have $2.8 trillion in revenue and includes household names like Amazon, Apple, Disney, and Microsoft, just to name a few. It argues that how to apply the 2022 FTC final regs to foreign taxes is very murky, and the relief period may not be adequate, especially for fiscal year taxpayers who are now subject to the final FTC regs for their 2024 fiscal year and need to make quarterly financial statement filings accounting for FTCs. And the government, for its part, seems to be listening. Although we haven't had a further extension just yet, earlier this week, the IRS revealed that it planned on extending the relief for fiscal year taxpayers who may not be covered by the relief period in the notice, and that they anticipate extending the relief for another year. We have a delay. Are we expecting additional guidance from the IRS? Yes. Also a few days ago, Treasury said that it hopes to release FTC guidance related to Pillar 2 by year end. Pillar 2 relates the OECD's global anti-base erosion rules and establishes a top-up tax for large multinationals with a revenue of 750 million euros, more than 750 million euros, to make sure they are paying a 15% effective tax rate in all jurisdictions where they operate. Treasury and the IRS has said that they are working on these FTC regs alongside the notice extension, and the regs will relate to taxes paid under Pillar 2's income inclusion rule, the under-tax profits rule, and the qualified minimum top-up taxes. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of moving parts to keep track of. Thank you for for giving us an update on them, uh, and thank you for being here. Thank you, Dave. It's good to be here. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief, Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Andrew Simmons and Hugo Hernandez-Rivera warned that regulations issued in 2015 put certain types of granite trust transactions at risk of being characterized as F-reorganizations. Three tax professionals examine recent developments in federal estate tax law affecting intergenerational wealth transfers. In Tax Note State, Thomas Clifford and Richard Anklum consider the transparency of state and local government revenue sources in New Mexico. Jeremy Abrams interviews former IRS Commissioner Charles Reddick about the interplay between the IRS and state revenue departments and how decisions at the federal level affect state tax administration. In Tax Notes International, Saul Pachado explores the origins of the GLOBE rules and the role the United States could play in supporting or opposing these international tax reforms. Paul Sutton and Rebecca Flanagan explain recent German transfer pricing guidance in the context of equivalent OECD and U.S. guidance. In Featured Analysis, Ryan Finley asserts that the apparent failure of the U.S. global crusade against digital services taxes should prompt a reassessment of U.S. policy. On the Opinions page, Joe Thorndike compares past administration's use of fiscal policy to influence the economy with that of the current administration. And now, for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, here is Tax Notes Federal Editor-in-Chief Ariel Greenblum. 
Thanks, Paige. I'm here with Christopher Morin, counsel at Venable in Baltimore. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you, Ariel. We're here to discuss your Tax Notes Federal article, Proposed Energy Credit Regulations Limit Clean Energy Investment, which you co-authored with Walter Calvert. Could you please tell us a little bit about it? Yes, thank you, Ariel. So the idea for the credit was focus more on some, some of the ways that Treasury and the IRS made what seemed like choices where they could have come down one way or another in the proposed regulations. And a lot of the choices seemed like they would have the effect of reducing the pool of potential investors. These new IRA energy credit provisions, the advertising or the, the promotion of this these laws focused on are expanding the base of, of potential investors, and that's going to increase the financing for, for energy projects. Historically, most of the energy credit finance has been with larger transactions that are either tax equity partnerships, um, sale leaseback type transactions, and usually the investor pool is primarily large corporations with sophistication and a lot of federal taxable income. So that's going to be banks, insurance companies, those sorts of taxpayers. The way these these provisions have been promoted is that now many taxpayers are going to be able to take advantage of the credit by just purchasing it directly as opposed to going through a complicated sale leaseback or tax equity partnership structure or tax-exempt organizations that previously could not benefit from the credit will be able to build projects themselves and then get a direct pay uh, refund, even if they don't have taxable income to offset. Um, But a lot of the ways that Treasury and the IRS interpreted, you know, potentially ambiguous uh, provisions seem to seem to fall on the side of reducing the the number of potential investors. And we really wanted to highlight some of those things because it's an enormous task for the IRS and Treasury to draft these regulations, given that the, the statutory background is leaves a lot of discretion for Treasury and the IRS. And there's not a ton of legislative history. And again, a lot of the ways that the IRS resolve and Treasury resolves potentially ambiguous points in the statute fell on the side of reducing the, the number of potential credit investors. Great. Did you, in your article, include suggestions for how Treasury and the IRS could sort of turn this around and sort of expand and encourage energy investment instead of limiting it? Yeah, I think we, yeah, the, the article goes uh, goes into some detail on w- ways that the IRS could revise the proposed regulations that would encourage or expand the, the number of potential investors. Great. Where did the idea to write about this come from? Yeah, so this, this is a Obviously, a big topic. It's a big change in tax law, and one of the things that we noticed in the proposed regulations that didn't seem to be addressed in a lot of other commentary is the impact on tax-exempt organizations. We have a large practice of tax-exempt organizations, and the direct pay provision was really described, at least initially, as a way that tax-exempt organizations, government entities, which previously were not players in the energy credit sphere because of their lack of taxable income, could now benefit from the credit through direct pay. 
but some of the provisions like the idea of a restricted tax exempt amount that would essentially restrict or even prohibit tax exempt organizations from raising grant funding to do energy credit projects or the rules on mixed partnerships or partnerships that only tax exempt organizations seem like they really, really limit the ability of tax exempt and government entities to utilize the direct pay election. Thank you. Before we let you go, where can listeners find you online? Yeah, I, I have a LinkedIn account and then uh, my, uh, I have a firm profile page under my, my name. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. Thank you. You can find Chris's co-authored article online at taxnotes.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tax Notes, for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy in tax. Again, that's Tax Notes with an S. Back to you, Dave. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.